Welcome to the Three Questions Podcast. We take questions from our church family and do our best to answer them from a biblical worldview. All of us have the privilege to serve the Lord's Church right here locally in Oklahoma City at Southern Hills Baptist Church. Doug Melton is our lead pastor. Our pastor of missions and evangelism is Randy Whittall. My name is Daniel Snow, and I get to be pastor of discipleship and young adults. You guys keep on sending in awesome questions, and please keep it up. Uh, three ways you can do that. You can text 505-258-2076. You can go to the website, myshbc.com slash contact, or you can email three questions podcast at myshbc.com with the number three up front. And we always keep the questions anonymous. So that's something you can just know. And okay, I just gotta, I just gotta ask you guys, did anybody see the Braves double play over the weekend. I did not. I did. I would love to hear about it. Absolutely. I thought Jeremy probably would have. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. Uh, it was Tyler Matzik, right? Is that right? Yes. Pitcher. I'm not a baseball fan, but I saw this on the highlight reel. And he, they hit a line drive at him. He basically did a no-look snag behind his head, caught it, threw it straight to second base, who threw it straight to first base. Uh, and oh, I said a, a line drive. Play. I'm sorry. It wasn't a, It bounced. Yeah, it was oh, a bounce. Oh, okay, okay. It bounced straight over his head, and he just put his hand up like this and caught it this way. And then in one, in one motion, threw it to second. It was, it was sweet. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. And like I said, I'm not even smart about baseball, but I was like, that was incredible. <laughs> so what would that be? I mean, was it shortstop or the second baseman that? took it took the throw shortstop and he had to he had to jump in the air as he threw the ball to complete the double play it was man one, it was one six yeah. three it was, it was <laughs> just yeah it, it was just like one one motion everybody was just in sync it's good baseball's back <laughs> <laughs> okay so here we go today our first question is about the lord's supper and the question is does it have to be the fruit of the vine and unleavened bread, and then there's it's kind of a two part question. They kind of they kind of slid two questions in on one here. Follow up, please. <laughs> Does that mean we're now the four question uh, today? <laughs> apparently, yeah. <laughs> Second part of the question is: Does it have to be in the context of a local church? So, first question: Does it have to be fruit of the vine and unleavened bread? Second, does it have to be in the context of a local church? So in the spirit of three questions, we can only answer one of those. <laughs> right. Now, we'll go ahead and we'll give them a freebie today. Okay, four <laughs> questions for the price of three today. Remember that the Lord's Supper, uh, when Jesus instituted it, was actually they were observing the Passover together. Mm-hmm. And Passover, obviously, was the one of the feasts that God instituted to remember their being rescued from uh, being rescued from Egypt, and they were to, uh, you know, they were to be together inside their homes. They were to kill the lamb, and they were to paint the blood on the outside of the door. We all remember right. the story, and so that Lord's Supper, that initial Lord's Supper, was a observance of that, but it was also meant to paint Passover in a different way. Hmm. Now. In fact, when I'm sure the disciples, as Jesus was taking the bread, dipping it in the in the the wine or the juice or whatever he had there, mm-hmm. they had to be thinking, "Where's where's the lamb? Yeah, there's supposed to be a lamb. 
you know, and they would mm. probably wouldn't understand that until later. Yeah. You know what, what the significance of this was. So really the Lord's supper takes a centuries old observance commanded by God to his people and redefined it in the light of the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. The new covenant. That's exactly right. And so everything about what was originally Passover was redefined in in the Lord's Supper. And so unleavened bread was the way you would take the Lord's Supper, but Scripture doesn't, doesn't actually tell us it was unleavened bread. It just said he took the bread and he broke, broke it. it and blessed it. And so I don't know that we could... Mm-hmm. You know, firmly doctrinally say it has to be unleavened bread. Right. Um, and as far as the cup, it says then he took the cup and he blessed it. It doesn't say what was in the cup, except that later Jesus would say, after this, from here on out, I will no longer partake of this fruit of the vine until I partake with you uh, in, in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so that's the only indications we have of exactly what it was, but we do know it's supposed to represent the blood that was painted on the doorpost to keep the angel of death from entering and the blood. And and, I mean, that was what it represented in the Passover. And then it represented obviously Jesus's blood that was about to be shed. So I do, you know, while I don't, wouldn't say it has to be a fruit, wine or grape juice, it should be something that is representative of the blood that makes us remember what happened. Yeah. Yeah, and I, boy, I agree with Randy, and I I would say, keep this in mind as well, that we always want to honor the Lord and what we're doing in that, and uh, I understand that someone, uh, if if for some reason we were going to have the Lord's Supper and we found out immediately before that Someone had stolen all of our unleavened bread <laughs> or that the mice carried it away or whatever. Yeah. And uh, who would do that? <laughs> and we, You'd have to have a lot to make yeah. a meal. That's right. Yeah. And and we've got to use a saltine cracker that we're doing everything we can to honor and to, uh, to keep in mind, keep the integrity of what the supper is about. Yeah. Uh, I agree with Randy. It just does say the bread, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and we know that preparations for the Passover had been made. So even though Matthew doesn't specifically say it was unleavened bread, it, it, it pro- most likely, most was. likely right. was unleavened bread. And so again, I'm agreeing with Randy. I'm just saying that it doesn't necessarily have to be unleavened bread, but we need to honor what the Scripture is teaching about the yeah. Lord's Supper. And and with the unleavened bread, again, not that it it we have to be legalistic about it, but and they're also a, a sinless picture there. That's right. That leaven represents sin, and this is unleavened bread. That's right. right. That in the Lord's Supper, we're remembering His body that was given, and that was a sinless, sinless that's right, perfect body that was given for us. Yeah, yeah. awesome. And so, sounds like kind of ideally, yes. In fact probably ideally red fruit of the vine if it's available to remember the blood of the Lord's death until he comes. And ideally, yes, unleavened bread um, if it's available to remember his sinless body uh, of his death until he comes. However, in circumstances where those elements aren't available, like there are certain locations around the world and certain circumstances that local churches are in where it's just not available, 
then, you know, some other form of maybe fruit juice and bread can work. And, and keeping in mind, God knows our hearts. Yeah, he does. He's looking at the motive of our heart and, and the Lord, we, we want to remember you and we're doing the best that we have available to us right now. He knows our hearts. That's right. I think what you said, Daniel, we, we, we want to honor what Scripture is trying to have us remember. And while it may not be dogmatic, this is one of those where everything to me is legal, but not everything to me is profitable. Yes, I probably could take the Lord's Supper using potato chips and Pepsi if I wanted to, mm-hmm. but that that's not what the spirit of, of, of the communion of the Lord's yeah. Supper is about. Good. Okay. And then the second part of the question, does it have to be in the context of a local church? Boy, we really dealt with this as a staff mm-hmm. uh, because during COVID, we weren't going to be able to, we wanted to have the Lord's Supper last Easter of 2012, well, on Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no one was going to be able to be on campus. And so I want this listener and all of our listeners know that as a staff, we really did wrestle with that. And we talked about it. Uh, Is the Lord's Supper only to be partaken when we can actually be physically present together in the same room? And again, your staff looked at the fact that in Scripture, that, that seemed to be what the case was, that right. the disciples were together, that as Randy pointed out, the, the origin of Passover and for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they were to do it in their own homes, but together as a family. Same time, same time of night, on the same day, always coordinated as a community. As That's a right. larger community. That's right. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, when he's giving instructions for the Lord's Supper, it's the assumption, and when you come together— mm-hmm. And so there is a physical aspect of being together. And again, we came to the place as a staff of understanding that the spirit of it was we were trying to come together. Mm-hmm. We were having to do it online, but there was the idea that we are honoring Scripture and obeying Scripture by this is an appointed time that we're doing it. We're doing it together. We're, we're coming together. We're just in different places mm-hmm. right now as we're doing it. So Yes, I, I do think there needs to be the sense of coming together when you partake of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, so it seems like the New Testament context that we have, the example that we have all through the New Testament is it's always in the context of the local church. Mm-hmm. And and as much as possible, that needs to be literally physically gathering together. And then we also acknowledge there's extreme circumstances where um, people may be homebound, and like for instance, in our local church, our deacons periodically take the Lord's Supper under the in the context of our local church and under the authority of our local church to those people who are homebound. But it, but again, it's still the local church. Yeah, that's good. And in that same line, overseas, our a lot of our missionaries serve in places where there are no other believers yet. They're in unreached people groups. And even in those contexts, when they gather as a family of believers to share, to, to partake of the Lord's Supper, I know from Sandy and I's perspective, it always was with the understanding that everything we did as missionaries was under the auspices and the, the, the sort of the, the direction of the local church that sent us out. Yeah, And uh, even though we were, the IMB was the, was the 
agency that helped with all the logistics of getting us out, we all recognize we're sent by a local church. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, I believe you're right. This is one of those things, Lord's Supper baptism or ordinances given to the church, not to individual Christians to just do whenever they felt like it was to be done in community. Yeah. And even with, with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world and the really high price that they pay to gather together for the Lord's Supper. Um, We need to remember that and we need to not dishonor it by just saying, yeah, whenever, wherever. Um, Like, for instance, maybe there's a a group of guys or gals on a college campus that are really doing life together, really holding each other accountable and, and pointing each other to the word and reaching out to the lost on their campus, all that kind of stuff. And maybe they say, well, why don't we on this certain week, just as our little group, take the Lord's Supper? And I would say to them, I don't think that's a great idea. I, I think, yes, do the Lord's Supper, but in the context of a local church, um, not just as kind of your own little thing. Yeah, because, boy, we love to hear when a mom or a dad or a mom and a dad get to lead their child to Christ, mm-hmm. uh, to faith in Christ, uh, but... Uh, I, I don't want them then to go to the backyard to the inflatable pool or whatever and say, well, here, we'll just baptize you right now. That really, again, is to be done in the context of believers because we believe that that child is not only becoming a part of the church overall, but in the context of Scripture, there's always the, the attachment to a local church. Right. And, and so that needs to be always understood, even in the context of baptism. Yeah, and I think both of these ordinances, a big part of them is this idea of testimony to other believers, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you can't do that if you're trying to isolate and, you know, do it in your backyard or, or whatever. The, the whole idea of that is we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes to others. We testify of his death, burial, and resurrection through our baptism to a community of witnesses. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's really tough to to take the teachings of Christ oh, and Paul or any of the New Testament and try to pull that outside of the context of the local church. And, and that's a big thing right now. I'm going to extend this a little further, and this isn't part of the question, but uh, even so now— So what are we at, five yeah, questions now? Yeah, we're to five. Then? Okay. So— uh, but even now, this you know, since COVID has forced us with not being able to gather to sort of spread out into mm-hmm. social media, you know, f- uh, Facebook Live things like that, which I'm very thankful we had during this time. But that's not a substitute for gathering of ourselves together. Mm-hmm. And I know from here on out, it could be very easy to fall into the trap of just saying, "Well, kids got ball games, we've got this. We'll just we'll just be church members." Through social media. By extension. Yeah, and that is never, that is definitely not the spirit of, of the New Testament and the idea of a local body of believers gathering together for the purpose of worship and glorifying the Lord and serving one another in the community. Guys, I'm having to go back uh, years whenever I read this, so please, listeners, don't <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be kind. Be kind to me. Uh, but the word ecclesia in the New Testament is like 113 times and 96 times it refers. It's referring to a local, local body. church. Right. The vast majority 
it's referring to a local church. Right. It's Jesus's idea. It's his That's invention, right. um, his body. Okay. Then, and then that leads right into the next question, which is what are the bare minimum requirements for a local gathering to be considered a New Testament church? You know, I, I would say, I, I think sometimes we think in terms of how many, and I would say the how many is not the important thing we see in Scripture. I agree. Because in Acts 1, there's 120. Well, so are we going to say, well, I guess you have to have at least 120. Well, there were 12 <laughs> whenever Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Mm-hmm. In Acts chapter 2, you have 3,000. So I don't think it's the number. I think it's that there is a body of baptized believers, a group, that are meeting regularly for spiritual nurture, for worship, for in spiritual instruction, uh, that they're meeting at a communicated time and place, that there is intent of a regular meeting at a communicated time and place. There is an identified leader, as the scripture that uh, Daniel pointed that out, the two officers, that, that there are there is an identified leader that they are aligned with the mission and the message of Scripture, and there is the intent of being a local church. I I would say those would be some minimum requirements. Absolutely, I agree. You know, Jesus even said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. You know, so I agree. Mm -hmm. The The logistics or the geography and the number, you know, where it has to meet and how many have to meet, I don't. I don't see any emphasis or importance on that in scripture. Early churches met by in, in homes on the banks of rivers. You know, I mean, they they met where where they could, and and overseas we still have many many places where the only place churches can gather are privately in homes where you know only maybe ten or fifteen or can people can gather at a time. So numbers not that, but what we do see in scripture over and over are is the biblical concept of what the church is supposed to be about, what it does. And and God tells us that, you know, he will that the church is all about lifting up Jesus and being built by him. Mm-hmm. It has designated leaders that the scripture says God provides. Ephesians 4 says and I will give unto the church, you know, prophets, apostles, evangelists, you know, he he gives us mm-hmm. that so he provides that leadership. And he clearly says that the church is to be about equipping the saints for ministry, for going and making disciples in other nations. So I would even add to what you said, this concept of reproducibility. The church has this vision of extending itself into into lostness. Uh, And so, you know, it's more about what the group is doing. So I would say those are just some of the minimums. And I would only throw one more thing in there, and that would be it seems like the expectation from the New Testament is multi-generational. Maybe not as a requirement, but it just seems to be the expectation because we see all these instructions like in Titus 2 where it's That's talking right. about the the older teaching the younger. That's right. And so there, it, it seems like there's an expectation that both are right. present. And um, Okay. And then last question is, can a Christian go to war if we are called to love our neighbor? And I, th- I think uh, I absolutely recognize that there are real Christians 
who have a conviction about pacifism. And I think that there there's a, a space for that. I mean, I think that's probably possible. Um, but I also would say that there is room for real Christians to have a personal conviction about being able to go to war at certain times for certain reasons. And really, the question is great. Can a Christian go to war if we're called to love our neighbor? And really, I think a Christian should only go to war because we are called to love our neighbor. In other words, <clears throat> out of a pursuit of a more just world, which we're called to in things like Micah 6, 8, uh, we're to, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Proverbs 21, 3, Psalm 18, 34, di- these different places that talk about that we're to pursue a more just world as an extension of God and his own sense of justice, his own justice. Um, and that we're, we're to be, if we're to be involved in some conflict like that, it's to be the, just that fighting for justice and defending those in need, not just out of an attitude of revenge or hate or something like that. I agree. Yeah. The, the motive is the, is probably the defining principle here. We go to war to protect life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of that love of neighbor. You know, is that idea of we are willing to put our lives at risk in order to protect the lives of, of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, that was sort of the principle of the good Samaritan example of who's my neighbor someone who was able to put his own, his own resources, his own life uh, to one side to help protect mm-hmm. someone else. Yeah. And, I, and so, and I believe uh, however unfortunate war is and loss of life is, it's still sometimes part of our duty, as you said, to, to be God's instruments in this world of justice, of as well as of grace and mercy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would caution us now, I'm not saying this particular questioner had this in mind, but we have to be, be aware of how we define when we say love. Because sometimes we can falsely think anything that's, that's uh, difficult or violent or antagonistic can't be love. And that's not, not always the case. Sometimes mm-hmm. that can be the most loving thing we can do. Yeah, no, that's good. And it's interesting that Exodus 15.3 tells us that the Lord is a warrior. That's right. Um, and we see that Jesus, all the way back from when he was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, Jesus, and we see what he came to actually do, sacrificed himself to deal a death blow to the serpent. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, he himself is a warrior on behalf of, of those in need, which is me and, right. and every other sinner. And, um, and so, and I don't think that that's, you know, there are some things that we have to say that's only something that God can do that we aren't supposed to do, but I think we're actually literally called to join him again in pursuits of justice and defending right. life, not the opposite. And so that's awesome. If, if, someone is interested in more of that kind of thing, you can look up things about just war theory and there's just helpful questions, ethical things to think through. But, uh, but all right. Thanks guys. Awesome conversation as usual. Jeremy Johnson is our pastor of media and community outreach and he makes this thing work every week. So thanks Jeremy. Absolutely. 
And uh, you guys that listen, thank you. Um, if it's helpful, know you can subscribe or share it with someone else. And always remember, the God of the Bible is never surprised or offended by our honest questions.